0: Good morning, church. How y'all doing this morning? Oh yeah, okay. All right, good to know. Uh, Well, uh, so glad you're here. Uh, We are in the midst of our series called Remarkable, looking at the life of Jesus uh, through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, So the story we have today is found in Mark chapter six. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there or an app or whatever you want. The story is also found in Matthew 13 and uh, Luke chapter four. Now, Luke records this story a lot earlier on in his gospel um, for a few different reasons, but we are fairly confident for a number of reasons that it's the same story. He just put it in a different place and it was, all, it was strategic because he was setting up all of Jesus's ministry. And, you can talk to me later about that if you wanna know all that kind of stuff. But that's the story that we're looking at today. So we're gonna read it. You can find it in Mark chapter six, uh, starting in verse one. Jesus left there and he went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Jesus, then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the 12 to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. And these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony to them. And they went out and preached and the people, that the people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So here we have a story of Jesus going to his own hometown and he, he gets rejected by his people. Now, in Luke chapter 4, he gives us a little bit more detail to this story as to what happened. So I'm going to read that as well for you. So Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in the synagogues, and everyone praised him. So he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and it was handed to him unrolling it he found the place where it is written the spirit of the lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed to proclaim the year of the lord's favor then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down now the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that were coming from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. And I tell you the truth, he continued, All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. That's pretty intense. They go from being amazed at his gracious words. Where did he get this kind of wisdom? And the next minute, they wanna throw him off of a cliff. Something really riled these people up, that they got so offended at Jesus. So let's look. Let's look at Mark chapter six again. We're gonna go through this and see what really was going on here. Now, it says in six verse one that Jesus went to his hometown, which is Nazareth. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that fulfills Old Testament proph- prophecy. But because of Herod the Great um, killing all the babies under two years old, they fled to Egypt. Now, when they were in Egypt, we don't know how long, could have been a year, a few months, I'm not 100% sure. Then Joseph has a dream and says, hey, you can come back because Herod the Great um, is dead. Uh, now, side note, completely side note, there's actually six different Herods in the Bible that all have the name Herod, Um, and next week we're actually going to look at some of those, so come back because man, man's kingdom is messy and a soap opera. Anyways, that's next week, but Herod the Great had died so they could come back, and they came and they settled in Nazareth, and so this is probably where Jesus is like three to five years old. So this is when Jesus shows up and starts living in Nazareth, up until the age of 30. So like that's 25 years that he spent living as Nazareth, as his hometown. Now, Nazareth, the best that we can guess is how many people lived there, it was probably under 1,000 people. Um, modern kind of research and evidence suggests that it was probably like 500, that this was a town of about 500 people. Now, I grew up in a little tiny town called Seven Persons. It's like way south by Medicine Hat. There's more than seven people there. There's about 250 people there. And if you have ever grown up or know what it's like growing up in a small town, everybody knows everybody and everybody knows everybody's business. So you can guarantee like Jesus coming back to this town, it's like they, they know Jesus. Like, and, and we see that evidenced here in, in some, of their, some of their responses. But this is like, this is a guy that they have known growing up 25 years, like pretty decently. But then they get really offended. So their curiosity is piqued because I mean they've heard a little bit about this guy at this by this point, like because he leaves and goes to Capernaum, and they're getting some crazy reports about what he's doing. So I can imagine that um, Sabbath day in the synagogue. It was like, hey, did you know that Jesus was coming to town? Yeah, Jesus is coming to town. Everybody going to the the synagogue to hear Jesus. Um, And so what was their custom was at the beginning of their services, they would read like their statement of faith um, and kind of have some opening scripture things. And then they'd have a time for anybody to really say something. So that's this point where we get Jesus who stands up and he reads this scroll uh, from Isaiah. And that's where things start to shift. they get really offended at him at this point. So let's, let's look um, at some of these things that they were saying. So many, many who heard him were astonished and they said things like, where did this man get these things? Where did he get these things? Now let's just stop and think about that for a moment. If you've known a guy for 25 years and all of a sudden you're asking the question, man, where did he get these things? Where did he get this wisdom? To me, it would imply that Jesus wasn't doing this kind of teaching during his time there. Is that he was just working, living his life, working as a carpenter, which we're gonna look at in in a minute, because this was something that seemed out of the ordinary. They're like, where did did he get these things? Like, this isn't the Jesus I've known. Like, what's going on? And I mean, the other thing is, is like, you know a guy, he's a carpenter, you know him your whole life, He goes away for a little while and comes back and he brings a bunch of disciples, like a bunch of followers. You're like, wait, what? What happened here? Like something, something shifted, something changed. So you can understand that the people of Nazareth were like, okay, there's something that's a little bit different here. And so that's where they start to have, I can imagine, a lot of these questions and a lot of these comments were just starting to like murmur among themselves as Jesus was teaching them. So where did he get these kind of things? It wasn't like Jesus was the guy that, you know, you've, you've, you've known that person that's like, hey, you got to keep an eye on that person. Like they're going somewhere, right? Like you, you know people like that. Where it's like, oh, this, this young guy there or, or this young girl or like they've got real talent, real, real skill, we're going to watch, watch their life with, you know, great interest. It doesn't seem like that's what's happened with the people of Nazareth. Because if, if there was that, kind of, oh, hey, you know, Jesus, he's, he's really going somewhere. Like, he would have been, like, put into rabbinical school to, like, become a rabbi, but he wasn't. This wasn't something that was the trajectory of the, that the people around him thought. Even his family was like, Jesus, you're crazy. Like, they thought he was out of his mind, like, insane. So they start talking, and they have all these Comments and, and and questions and like this is this is our carpenter. Now the word carpenter uh, that we have in scripture can be used to describe someone who works with wood, stone, or, or or bricks. So there's not a lot of lumber readily accessible in that area, so it's it's plausible that he did work with wood, but most likely he was a builder with all kinds of materials. So like he worked in the trades. This was Jesus, and if you think about it, if he was grew up in this town. Like, say he started working with his dad at 20. I'm sure it was way earlier than that. But from 20 to 30, that's a decade. Like, that's, that's a decade of Jesus working in the trades. Like, this isn't a small amount of time. And, and I can imagine that he was probably a great worker, and he was skilled, and like, was able to do the job that He was made to do, I mean, I wonder, like, just for fun, I wonder how many people in Nazareth, like, that house was built by Jesus, or, you know, like, "Ah, have a house built by Jesus, or I don't know what else he would have built, all kinds of stuff, Um, but I mean, this is what you know of the guy, you know? It's like, hey, I got 10 years experience in this business, and then all of a sudden he just abandons it and, and is gone? I mean, that raises a few questions of like, okay, something's up, maybe this guy's gone crazy, you know? That's kind of where you know, they're potentially thinking. Uh, And then they ask, they say this, they say, well, isn't this Mary's son? It's kind of interesting that they say it that way because typically everybody in scripture is referenced by their father. We have, um, in two of the three accounts that we have, uh, it says they call him Mary's son. In one of the accounts, it says Joseph's son. Um, But there's a couple of reasons why they might have called him the son of Mary, rather than saying the son of Joseph. The first one is, it, it could be quite derogatory, actually. If you think about it, that Jesus shows up in Nazareth when he's, when he's little, like, you know Mary and Joseph are going to tell the birth story. Like, it's a small town. You're going to hear the story of the virgin birth at some point. And so you're faced with, as like, if somebody moves to your town and says, like, hey, this is what happened. You're faced with the reality of, like, do I believe them? Or did something else happen on to cause some questionable familial lineage here so you you can safely guess that this is kind of something that they would have had in the back of their minds of like well we don't know if jesus is actually joseph's son or not or there was something weird that went on here because this whole virgin birth thing like, i don't know that's kind of whatever so the people are already probably questioning things so calling him the son of mary was being was kind of being on the nose of like well we know you're mary's son but we don't know who the dad is i mean it's it's god anyways um The other option that you could take, this calling him the son of Mary, uh, would be that Joseph had died at this point. Now, I think um, probably for, I would say it's safe to say that Joseph is is dead at this point in the story, um, because we don't hear anything about Joseph after Jesus is 12 years old. Um, In fact, earlier on in Mark here in chapter three, when his family thinks Jesus is crazy, so they come to get him, and they're like trying to forcefully like take him home, uh, the disciples come and say, hey, your mother and your brothers are here. They don't mention anything about Joseph being the one to come get him. Um, so I think that there's probably a pretty strong case for Joseph um, having died at this point already. Now, we don't know which of those two reasons they may have called him the son of Mary, and I think we could probably say it might be a mix of both um, a little bit. Um, we're not 100% sure either way. Then they talk about his brothers and his sisters. So they know his brothers and they know his sisters. Um, I was thinking about this and then I started to do some math and I'm like, that's at least six siblings, aside from Jesus. That's a pretty big family for Jesus to grow up in as the oldest of at least six. I mean, it says sisters, it doesn't say how many, like I'm assuming that there was two, if they say multiple, there could have been more than that. But like, thinking about Jesus growing up in a pretty big family is just an interesting thing to think about. It also really kind of um, addresses some false thinking of like Mary was a virgin and she was always a virgin like perpetually, it's like no, she had a bunch of other kids. Um, she was only a virgin for Jesus' uh, birth. Anyways, uh, and then Jesus says a statement that I think this is, this is where the people of Nazareth are kind of like, now they have to make a choice. Because at this point, they're just kind of like, hey, what's going on? The murmurings are happening. And then he says this, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. Jesus here makes a very direct claim of being a prophet. He's basically saying to them, I'm a prophet. So now they have a choice. I mean, and he's claiming to be a prophet on the level of the prophets of old, of their, of their Torah, the inspired word. So for them, that's like, that's a pretty big claim. And it's like, but I've known you for 25 years. You haven't made a prophecy or done anything. So for them, it just didn't line up. They couldn't see the truth of Christ being revealed to them. This carpenter is now saying that he's a prophet and then we have to listen to him. And actually he says some pretty tough stuff. If we look into into Luke, what he says is like, the nation of Israel? Like when they were going through hard times, God actually gave grace to the Gentiles, the people that were outside of the nation and the nation missed it. Man, he was basically saying like, you guys are gonna miss it and God's gonna bless somebody else. And that stings when you are seen or your nation is like, we are God's chosen people, but he's gonna bless somebody else. This is what you're saying and you're saying that you're a prophet and your words are from God. That is not true. So now they're into the false prophet territory where they wanted to take him to a hill and throw him off to kill him. But it's crazy. The people that knew Jesus the best are so, they thought, for so many years, missing it. Them thinking that we've known you our whole lives, this doesn't work. And this really, really kind of sad statement it says is, and he could do no mighty work there. Except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled, he was amazed because of their unbelief. Do you know there's two times in scripture that it records us telling us that Jesus was amazed? There's only two times that Jesus was amazed. One was because of the faith of the centurion. The centurion has a sick servant and he wants Jesus to come heal his servant. So Jesus starts going to heal his servant, and the centurion's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's like, you don't have to be at my house. You don't have to come here. Just just say the word and he will be healed. He's like, I understand how authority works. Jesus is like, wow, that's amazing faith. Like even to me, I'm like, "That, that is amazing faith. And Jesus was amazed at the faith of the centurion, but here it says he was amazed at their lack of faith. He was amazed how little faith they had. This was an amazing faith, this was amazing unbelief. In John chapter seven, verse five, it even says that Jesus's own brothers didn't believe in him at this point. Some of them do later on, we know. They didn't believe in him. And he could only heal a few people because of their lack of faith. But now I think we need to be careful with this. I I wanna take some time to address this specifically. Is it true that a lack of faith can be the reason for something not happening or God not doing something? Yes, that is true. But I think we need to look at this story. The people in this story, they were not looking to Jesus to do something. They were not seeking after him. They were not asking him, saying, hey, we need you to do this in our lives. Because when, when we come to Jesus, when there is something in our life that we're like, oh man, okay, I need to go to the Lord for this. Even the fact that we go to the Lord for it is an exercise of faith. Even if it's the smallest faith. Because what we believe, that's, that's faith, belief, faith. What we believe controls how we act. If I didn't believe that God could do anything, then I probably wouldn't pray. But if I even have the slightest belief that he could do something, I would seek him. Now there is a whole myriad of reasons of why God would do something and maybe God wouldn't do something in your life. Because we are complex. There's complex situations in our lives and we don't understand all the details but God does. And he knows why everything does or doesn't or needs to or doesn't need to happen. Sometimes things don't happen because we ask with wrong motives. Like our motives are actually off when we seek the Lord on something. And so he's not gonna <laughs> work in that way. Sometimes he says, now is not the time. <laughs> he's like, I know the time, now is not the time. So I think we have to kind of like step back and be like, okay, yes, there are situations where because of a lack of faith, stuff doesn't happen. But in this situation, they were not coming in the same way that those who seek Jesus were. Because they didn't, they didn't want Jesus. They completely rejected him and had him like at arm's leg trying to kill him. And I think for us, those who believe and follow him, that's not the attitude that we we take. Even the smallest faith, faith of a mustard seed can move a mountain. So trust God, he knows the good things you need when you need them and he is good. So we, we trust him, we put it into his hand and let him make the decision on that. So thinking about this though, Could Jesus have just healed more people? Could he have been like, I know you don't want it, but bam, healed. Like, yeah, he probably could have. But but that's not who Jesus is. That's not his character. He doesn't force himself on anyone, even his goodness. He doesn't force it. He calls, he says, hey, come to me. And those who respond, they experience his goodness. Those who respond to his call, they experience the goodness of Christ. So he could have just went and healed a bunch more people there. But that's not his character. That's not God's character to force you to do anything. It's an invitation. It's always an invitation. Even with the Holy Spirit and our relationship, walking step by step with him, it's an invitation. He's like, come walk with me. Let's go deeper. Those who respond to his call experience his goodness and his grace. And then the story moves on. After Jesus is rejected. It says, then Jesus went out around teaching from village to village, calling the 12 to him. He sent them out two by two, gave them authority over evil spirits. And these were his instructions. Take nothing on the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. If any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that the people should repent. They drove out demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So there's a lot in that little chunk about Jesus sending out the 12, and, and we could unpack that probably for days and have questions about why certain things and not. But the one thing that I wanna look at specifically is this. If you look at that story in conjunction with what just happened to Jesus, Jesus just went with his disciples, mind you. I mean, like I don't know if they dragged the disciples with them. I don't know what Peter was doing at this time when they were trying to drag Jesus off a cliff. Like, we don't have that story, but they were with him. And they were just there experiencing the rejection of Jesus at his hometown and his family as well. And then Jesus gets to this and he says, now I'm sending you out. He's like, and if a town doesn't welcome you, shake the dust off your feet and go to another place. Like that's exactly what Jesus did. Cause we see that he's rejected. And then in, right after that, he was amazed at the lack of faith. And then Jesus went around and teaching from other villages to other villages. Don't get hung up on rejection. There are so many more people that need to hear about Jesus. I find it interesting, this is like the perfect way to teach someone something, right? It's like, you teach them it, and then you model it, which is huge. So Jesus taught them about it. I mean, we have all throughout the Gospels, Jesus telling his disciples about how they are going to be rejected. He's teaching them about it. He's teaching them about it here afterwards. He modeled it. He went and was like horrendously rejected. And then what did he do? He's like, okay, now I'm giving you guys the chance to go and experience this as well. He's like, I'm sending you out together. Go two by two. So he's teaching them, he's modeling them, he's giving them a chance, and then they come back and they report about it, and he's like, all right, great, you know? And then correcting them on it, saying, hey, maybe let's try this, maybe do this differently, or whatever. Like, it's the perfect way to teach it. It's like Jesus is the perfect example for us to follow. Like, I just love it so much. They get to go out, practice, copy, doing what they have seen Jesus doing, including all of it, even dealing with the rejection. See, Jesus needs the gospel to be spread by all of us. I mean, that's why he mobilized the disciples and said, hey, this is bigger. This is just, this is everybody. This is what we're gonna do. The news that Jesus died for the punishment of our sins so that we could be free. I mean, like, that's great news. I love what Jesus says the verse he quotes in Luke chapter four when he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. When he says, like, like basically this is why he's here. This is why Luke puts it at the beginning of his, of his gospel because he's like, this, this is the whole mission statement of Jesus. He's like, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Man. Do we still need to preach good news to the poor, freedom to the captives and prisoners? Yes. (laughs) We still have work to do. But you know what's interesting? This passage that Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61, he ends it in the middle of the sentence. If you read the quote from Isaiah 61 and you read the whole thing, Jesus actually stops. He's like, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, period. But in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, it goes on. And I think this is very important for us to take note of. This is what it says. Um, To proclaim freedom for the captives, this is Isaiah 61, verses one and two. To proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of the vengeance of our God. Now Jesus doesn't talk about the vengeance of God. I'm like, why? Because the vengeance wasn't the reason he came the first time. The punishment and vengeance of God is why Jesus will come back the second time. But this first time, when Jesus comes, is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That God's grace is upon you, that you have a chance to respond to the call of Christ, to repent of your sins. That's God's grace. The judgment comes later, but Jesus is like, now is the time to repent. I mean, that's what he told the disciples to go and say. Go and proclaim, now is the time to repent. Turn to Christ. And I would say the same thing to you, now is the time to repent and turn to Christ. This is the year of the Lord's favor at this point. But there is one day where Christ will come back. (laughs) Enough said. Wow, one day, but today is not that day. It might be actually later, I don't know, I can't say. I gotta be careful what I say. (laughs) One day Jesus is coming back and it'll be in a very different way than when he came the first time. When he came the first time, it was in grace and humility, not to condemn and judge the world, but to save it. That's why he stops that quote there. Now I think the people of Nazareth Didn't think they needed saving. Like, "Ah, We're pretty good. We follow all these rules. And Jesus is like, no, I'm here here (laughs) for those who need me to be saved. I mean, we don't have any stories of Jesus ever going back to Nazareth. I mean, maybe he did. I mean, we we know that his brothers, some of them eventually, follow him. But we're not sure the rest of the story there. So I have a couple takeaway thoughts on this for us today. First one is this. Jesus was rejected by the people that you would say would have known him pretty close. He teaches his disciples what to do when they get rejected. He tells us over and over in scripture, you follow me, what they did to me, they will do to you. Don't get hung up on rejection because there's so many more people that need to hear about Jesus. because this is the thing. Like, I think we forget this. Eternity is at stake. That's what's at stake for people. Like, eternity. Like, that's not a small thing. Like, man, like I wish I would wake up each morning recognizing and being like, yes, eternity is at stake for this person, like my coworker here or there or whatever it was. Like, that kind of sobers us up a little bit and being like, man, yeah. I think we get so scared of being rejected. But if you want to live a life that is like rejection-free and everybody loves you and, you know, never going to have any problems with people, I'm like, following Jesus probably isn't the way. But I'm also going to say, that's probably an idealistic, unrealistic dream because this just ain't going to happen. Being rejected is part of following Christ. It's, it's, this is the territory we live in. If they rejected him, they will reject us as well so we do what jesus did go preach in another town in another village like tell somebody else because this is the thing your identity as a son or daughter of the king is solid that can't change no one can take that from you like you are loved you are precious you are held in his hands that that's solid that's that's not going anywhere So don't get hung up on rejection. Eternity is at stake, so what do we do? We sow more seed, we tell more people. Because time is short, the time is short. The second thing, second takeaway point for you on this today, do you know the real Jesus? Do you know the real Jesus? Or do you maybe have some presuppositions, some ideas of, well, this is what Jesus is like, kind of put up in your mind, just like the people of Nazareth? Well, you know, maybe you're someone who's like, oh man, I've heard the story of Jesus over and over and over and over and over again and again and again my entire life, and that's all it is to you now, is just a story. Maybe you've grown up here in the church just hearing about Jesus and like, okay, yeah, whatever. Like, do you know the real Jesus? The revealed Jesus? the God's son come to save the world, Jesus. Maybe you're like super knowledgeable and you know all the facts and all the quizzing history knowledge there is to know about Jesus. But do you know him personally? Or do you just know what other people tell you about him? I mean, don't take my word for who Jesus is. Go and find out yourself. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Like there's a reason why we have four books to look at one man's life because there's just so much depth there of who this guy is. I wonder how many people that have walked away from the faith, that have walked away from the church, walked away from Jesus because they didn't actually know him. Because like getting to know him better and better, I'm just like, how could I ever walk away from him? I need him so badly. Have you heard the story of Jesus over and over and over again, but yet there's no change in your life? Do you really know who Jesus is? Because now's the chance. Now is the year of the Lord's favor. Seriously, like his grace is upon you to have given you a chance to respond to Jesus' call. That he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Like that's who he is. Like so you have a chance. Because one day Jesus will come back and then you won't have a chance. He'll come back in a very different way blood dripped, soaked cape, tattooed horse, flame and sword kind of way, like intense. But Jesus is calling, saying, hey, come to me. Time is short, eternity is at stake. This is not a small thing. Do we just take him as well? You know, he's some guy who lived back in the day who was kind of whatever, a carpenter and Yeah, or do we actually take him as who he was, the son of God? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you and praise you so much for your son, Jesus. God, we thank you so much for how you've revealed who he is through your word, his heart. God, we thank you that he is the example for us to follow, that we can look to. Lord, may we always remember that eternity is at stake. This is not just something to put on the back burner and think about another day. No, this is, this is it. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, God, that you would draw them close, that you would call and they would respond by getting to know you more and more and deeper and deeper. And that your goodness and grace would flow out over them into their lives. That they would know, that they would taste and see that you are good. Oh God, we praise you and we thank you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. I want to invite our our prayer team down to the front. If if God's working in your heart, today's the day. Like, respond. If Jesus is calling or telling you something, like, don't just ignore him. Uh, We have some people up here who would love to pray with you, love to answer any questions you have. I mean, like, yeah, don't miss the chance, the opportunity that God has where he's calling out your name. Um, Because today, this is the year of the Lord's favor and his grace. So may we live that way.